Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're very lucky to be joined yet again by Jay Smith. How you doing, Jay? I'm good. How are you? I'm very, very good. Thank you, sir. And uh, thank you for taking the time to come on the, on, on the show again. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, was, it was fun last time. I enjoyed it. So. Awesome. I'm hoping to relive that. Uh, plenty has happened. I think it was last time we spoke was in November time. And since then, plenty has happened uh, in the cryptocurrency space, both financially and also what I care about mostly is technically as well. Uh, so I thought it'd be really great to get you back on the show and we can kind of, you know, talk about a host of different topics. So I was just going to say, it's kind of funny because I think the price now is about the same as it was when we last spoke. Yeah. So it's almost like nothing's happened. I mean, this is the yeah. beauty of crypto, you know, it's just like, it's just plateaued. You, little would you know that it shot up to like something like 14,000 and yeah. uh, back down again. But uh, yeah, so I mean, for you, kind of like, how has the last couple of months been for you? Uh, it's been crazy. Um, November and December, shortly after speaking to you, was um, the biggest influx of people I've ever seen into into cryptocurrency. Everyone I knew, family members that you know have never cared about it, friends. It was it was absolutely insane. Um, you know, people that I've spoken to once in my life were reaching out to me. People that I sent money to years ago were reaching out to me asking where it was. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah. they're like, you know, you sent me that joke money, you know, really? yeah. like, that turns out not to be joke money anymore. Yeah, indeed. It's been pretty crazy. And wow, as we're speaking, uh, <laughs> cryptocurrencies have just literally mooned. So <laughs> I've got charts open in one of my screens and uh, yeah, everything's just shut up. So something. Might- and is there a cause and effect or is it just... I mean, because that's that's the thing at the moment, kind of like what I mean, what really has been going on? Like, I know that we obviously had this massive boom uh, from people coming in uh, and then it's kind of plateaued now. Uh, do you mind going to be given a little bit of kind of a history of the last couple of months? If I mean, that's a very easy thing to do, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think a lot of the talk about new technology like Lightning Network coming through, um, which is now, you know, running pretty well on on um, the main net of Bitcoin in theory. I haven't used it, but I know a lot of people that have. Um, so, so that was getting a lot of attention. Uh, obviously, CryptoKitties was uh, shortly after we spoke, I think, um, which was the most used app in, you know, in Ethereum. Would you mind explaining that for the audience, what actual CryptoKitties is? <laughs> so CryptoKitties is actually the first real use of an ERC721 token. So there's two token standards in um, Ethereum. One is ERC20 which is what pretty much everything that uses Ethereum is using. It basically lets you create a currency where every single, um, every single unit of that currency is you know, entirely identical to every other unit. So they're all interchangeable. But ERC721 is different and lets you do some cool things. So with ERC721, you can make units that are different to other units in different ways, and you can build all sorts of cool relationships. So effectively some smart people managed to figure out a way of making it so that you could breed coins, you could breed tokens. So you, you get a cat and that cat has traits. So maybe your cat's a very hairy cat or it's got long legs. And if you get another cat and then you kind of leave them together for a while in your wallet, then you can basically make them breed together and generate a new coin <laughs> or a new crypto kitty effectively, which has different traits and it's adopted traits from the parents. So uh, it was a really cool experiment, and they actually just raised uh, a bunch of funding, something in the region of like 50 million, I think. You're joking. No, I'm not, I'm not joking. They just re- raised an absolute what? wealth of funding. I assume because uh, people are interested in the potential to build real games out of it. Yeah, because I think, that, and it's also the proof of concept, isn't it? I mean, the fact that this really did kind of overwhelm the Ethereum network, which is a bit scary yeah it ground it ground it to a halt <laughs> uh, my girlfriend was asking me to buy her some crypto kitties um, <laughs> i showed her i showed her metamask and she quickly changed her mind <laughs> oh brilliant man but that, see that's that is the thing isn't it and i mean it needs these kind of surges um you know to kind of yeah to, to keep the you know the technology running and all these new things that are coming out vitalik's talking about and all of the ethereum developers are talking about you know it just it does show that we still are in very much the infancy uh, and it's just an exciting time because these technologies are growing in front of us really 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and, it, and it was good because it, it did a lot of uh, useful testing of the network, effectively. We really got to see just how much the Ethereum network could handle uh, as, as that project took off. I think uh, Vlad and Vitalik and the other guys at Ethereum are now <laughs> potentially even more urgently trying to implement their, their solutions to scaling. That, yeah, absolutely. And I think it is, it's one of those funny things with the whole cryptocurrency space is that a lot of it is we, we don't really like because I've been there's been actually I don't know whether you've seen it software engineering daily. They're like a podcast kind of, you know, they do so much work in the software engineering space, but they did this massive series on Ethereum on pretty much all these different cryptocurrencies and also the technologies behind them. And uh, one of the things that really kind of shone out from it is that really we don't know why it works because there is no mathematical proof behind things such as like proof of work. There is no mathematical formula of why this works. It just works. And you put it into practice and you see it working. And the fact that, you know, over years time, you know, years and years of it working, it kind of is a self-fulfilling prophecy of it. Well, then it's got to work because it has worked. Um, So it's, it's interesting kind of, you know, you need these kind of experiences in the real world of like real use cases to actually, kind of validate yes we're going in the right direction and yes well this is why we need these technologies and things of that ilk yeah i mean it's interesting that you talk about um about proof of work as an experiment i mean a proof of stake uh you know proof of um there's there's one called proof of brain which is used in uh steam there's there's proof of importance used in them um all of these different systems uh are the ones that succeeded their experiments effectively um you know, when when Satoshi created proof of work, it really was a gamble on if it would actually work, if people would really be motivated to spend money mining something that doesn't have any value, and if uh, if the difficulty changes and things like that would really be enforceable and, and work okay, or if people could game the system. Um, but so far, proof of work has has proven very very resilient against uh, a whole host of different uh, attack vectors. So it's. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's proven itself well, but yeah, it's 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 an interesting field. It's always always evolving. Absolutely, absolutely, and as I say, it's in its infancy, so it's constantly evolving and switching. Uh, and I think you know, it, I mean, proof of work. One people you know say like proof of work isn't the most optimal way of doing such a thing, uh, but it's at this time the only proven way to do it. Uh, you know, it's had ten years now of it working essentially so it's the only one that's actually stood the test of time uh obviously you know proof of work the one thing about it is it pretty much does want to destroy the whole environment uh with the fact that you know your stake in it and you're put you know putting some skin in the game is the fact that with electricity and i, I can't remember there was like some stat or kind of thing of like how much bitcoin like the bitcoin network the amount of electricity actually uses you know constitutes to many many countries uh, worth of electricity which is kind of scary um because it obviously can't stay that way uh you know and that's why we're looking at these different proof uh, proof kind of protocols uh but yeah it, it is very interesting yeah um it's it's interesting i i think uh i think we're starting to see uh a transition away from proof of stake now for a lot of cryptocurrencies as from proof of stake proof of work sorry um they're all towards, proof of aren't they <laughs> yeah they're, they're all proofs of we could just say the the last word and ignore the first two <laughs> um yeah i i think we're starting to see a, a slight transition away to it in away from it in you know this era of asics and and things like that like what happened with um bitcoin cash for example and um bitmain and uh the the exploit that they found um and you know bit fury building things into their into their cards that allows them to gain some of the profits and things like that there, there have been some problems with proof of work and the main problem has been stopping people from building asics and stopping that, people that from... is pretty much it isn't it that yeah, is the, that... the, the ground thing yeah, I, like, you know, that's that's one of the core problems. Another core problem, of course, is the 51% attack. Um, we see in most cryptocurrencies, you can pretty much gain 51% of the network with just three or four mining pools. Um, because, of course, it's it's inefficient to mine alone. That's it. And obviously, you're going to, cl- you know, these things, these clusters are going to end up generating and this, this is this is putting it into the real world, you know, where people are going to, you know, share resources uh, whether they're going to buy out that that themselves or as you say they're going to go together and make these mining pools that es- essentially yeah become problems i mean it's happened in the past hasn't it where some pools actually had to disband because of this yeah yeah i remember um i remember i think it was btc uh getting over 51 percent back in about 2014 um in just one mining pool 
And so everyone was moving over to our slush pool and a few other pools. Would, would you mind maybe for the audience just to explain kind of what the 50% attack is? I know we touched on it a bit last episode, but it'd be good maybe to rehash it. Yeah, so basically the 51% attack means that you are controlling 51% of hashing power. And if you control 51% of hashing power, then that means that you are going to be creating, on average, more blocks than the remaining 49%. Um, now, since Bitcoin and most cryptocurrencies work on a longest chain basis, that enables them to effectively have control of the network and insert some malicious uh, transactions if they want to. So, for example, they could undo some transactions and send transactions back to people and validate transactions that should not be validated effectively. Um, so they would be able to do things like roll back the blockchain and stuff. Yeah, that's that's a big problem. You know, immutability is is you know one of the core things about about Bitcoin. So um, yeah, I would say that's that's basically the fifty one percent attack rounded up, I guess. No, absolutely, and and that is a, a big problem with the proof of work. And like you say, you know, there's been past you know problems with it shining a light. And I suppose it's the fifty one percent attack, and then obviously the environmental costs. Um, you know, these are the two big factors why proof of work really can't be sustained. Um, you know, we need to look at a different way of of dealing with it and doing a proof protocol. Yeah. So with the environmental stuff, it's quite interesting actually. I have a lot of debates about people who say, you know, how can how can you trade this thing when it's doing so much damage to the planet? And you know, I'm a I'm a self confessed uh, greenie, so <laughs> you know, a pretty pretty left leaning guy. Um, so I do care a lot about the planet and and how we're affecting it. But as I keep pointing out to people, actually, it's so far um, worked as a bit of a storage method, effectively, of capturing excess uh, energy that we are producing. So in China, for example, a lot of the mining farms are actually connected directly to hydro plants, um, which is where they get their power from. And and so they are using excess power generated um, to generate these things. I did some consultancy in London for someone that I obviously won't name. Um, who owns a bunch of power stations around the world, some of which in, are in uh, China. These are coal, coal stations in this instance. And they were looking at uh, methods for quickly ramping up and ramping down in mining to use excess power um, as, a way of, as a way of, you know, because, because obviously trying to slow down the production of the energy takes a lot longer and actually almost costs more, more power than... Um, than it would save in a lot of instances. So it's better to just use that power and effectively store it in something. So in the same way that you can store power in batteries, which is what Tesla is doing with their solar panels and things, um, there are now power plants that are working directly with cryptocurrencies to try and store it in value within a cryptocurrency effectively. So so I'm not trying to excuse it. Obviously, I still think it is uh, an inefficient system because we're using you know somewhere around the region of what what the country of hungary is using <laughs> um, and i've been to hungary it's a nice place <laughs> and uh and they have a lot of electricity so <laughs> so um it's it's not a small amount of power at all um but it but it is interesting you know genesis mining for example they're operating out of iceland and using geothermal power and of course they don't really have to pay for much cooling up there they just put a few fans in um so i think uh i think mining has a tendency to to move towards the the best environments for it and the best environments are cold environments where there is excess energy basically yeah that that really does check the the list off doesn't it of a place a a good place to actually (laughs) put a mining rig yep so proof of work, you know, we, we've kind of come to the conclusion that we need probably something else. Uh, and there are, as you say, a couple of different proof co- co- uh, kind of protocols that have been proposed, uh, one of which uh, Ethereum are taking on. Uh, and I think this is one of the interesting things because Bitcoin uh, primarily is a very kind of uh, reluctant, you know, I would say now, you know, it's 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 obviously, you know, well it invented the space so you know it started this movement off and it's got 10 years now of kind of and the developers you know are very hesitant obviously to do any switching and things uh we've got segwit and now we've got the lightning network would actually would it be very good you know maybe to discuss could would you mind maybe discussing kind of what the lightning network is and why is it so important to the bitcoin network yeah so the lightning network is basically taking day-to-day transactions off of the main bitcoin blockchain that's that's like the goal of it right and to achieve this in a way that is you know fair and cheap and fast and um and manageable and secure um 
what they have done basically is created uh, a smart contract, a type of smart contract. And actually, Ethereum has done this as well. They're working on effectively the same technology in Raiden. And Plasma is quite similar to this as well, but takes it a step, a step further. Um, so basically, the smart contract is a multi-sig wallet. So you have two people, me and you, um, and we can choose together to open a wallet. And both of us have the right to uh, a wallet, a payment channel. And both of us have the right to close this channel at any point that we want. All we have to do is use the last version of something that we both signed. So in the instance of we open it, um, that transaction is written onto the blockchain, the real blockchain. And then we can close, close it again, either one of us, without the other person's permission, um, and, and settle the balance of that payment channel uh, just by showing proof of the, the last uh, thing that we both signed. So, so that's effectively how the payment channel works. So once the payment channel is set up, um, I can send you uh, as many transactions and you back to me as we want. And all of these transactions are effectively stored off-chain. They're stored in our Lightning-compatible wallets, effectively. So we both keep a copy of our balance that we owe each other in this payment channel. And then whenever we close it, um, the balance is settled onto the real blockchain and the funds actually transfer. So when we open the contracts, we have to uh, deposit the amount of money that we think we might need for that payment channel. We can't exceed that amount at any point, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of that makes perfect sense, man. Absolutely. And, it, and this is super interesting. And, you know, obviously, it's a controversial debate, because, you know, some people say, you know, that there should be one true chat, you know, one true chain, obviously, and, you know, splitting it off into its own world, you're kind of, you're making essentially another distributing out obviously the trust uh, and you're making these kind of you know that now it becomes you trusting these lightning networks and these lightning servers how, how do the how are the servers actually kind of how do they connect to each other and communicate so they use they use the bitcoin mainnet to speak to each other effectively um but but really it's 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 not um it's not a real problem in terms of decentralization actually it's still pretty decentralized. So what you can do is you can create a mesh net of these payment channels. So if, for example, I have a payment channel open to, let's say, um, Coinbase, and you also have a payment channel open to Coinbase, I can send you money by using those two payment channels without Coinbase knowing what I'm sending to you. Um, <laughs> so, so you can do multi-hop transactions in this network. Um, and and there's really no infrastructure cost. The only major cost to it is um is effectively the wallets that we all have to use which again you don't have to keep them open 24 hours or anything like that um it's it's all stored locally effectively it's locally for me and locally for you and then coinbase in in that instance they see it going through them but they don't know what it is it's fully encrypted um it, yeah, it goes cool. to you and then once it reaches you um i get effectively validation that you've got it and i send you the password to unlock that hash <laughs> um, so it's it's super 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 smart systems, and I remember the first time I looked, I saw this explained for Lightning Network, and I've probably explained, done a terrible job of explaining this, by the way. The first time I saw it was just absolutely mind blowing to me um, to think that we could effectively, through through very few um, connections, very few hops, because of course there's the the famous phrase about you're connected to everyone through like seven hops, right? Through seven friends, you know everyone in the world. So if that turns out to be true, which I guess we'll find out with Lightning Network, then it means that in seven hops, we can make a payment to anyone using Lightning Network, and we would only need a maximum of you know, seven payment channels each per person, uh, which is pretty accessible. And it's just amazing how they kind of are able to engineer this on top of an existing system. Because I think that's, you know, obviously we don't want to change the fundamentals. We just want to add on top. And this is kind of it, you know, using external systems. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so the the wallets actually have a, a time limit on them, the payment channels, and so they automatically will want to close after a set time, and that you can choose when you create it. And yeah, it it settles to the blockchain. So, so every you know every once in a while, it will settle, close the the payment channel, and settle it on the blockchain. You can see the money's gone somewhere. But what's interesting is that if I did use uh, the Coinbase channel to to get to you and stuff, for example, there really would be no record of me paying you because all people would see is my payment channel to Coinbase and Coinbase's payment channel to you. And they don't know that I've gone through that. Um, so it actually adds a layer of privacy to the network as well, which is really quite interesting because Bitcoin has not really had that for quite a long time. <laughs> not, not since people realized they could just 
go back through history and, and see everything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, so what, you know, once it's get it gets written to the master blockchain, that's all done with proof of work again. Uh, one thing that Ethereum wants to do, and, and I think this is one of the, the best things about Ethereum is that they still are trying to push, you know, they are a lot more kind of as adept to wanting to change. Uh, and with their Casper protocol using Casper, they want to move from a proof of work to a proof of stake. Now, this is where it gets a little bit. I think proof of work, you can kind of understand. And, you know, obviously it's been tried and true for many years. What does proof of stake do? And, and like, what are the pros and cons of, of that change? Okay, so proof of stake is basically where you lock up a bunch of funds in your wallet. And that is your bet that you will continue to validate the network in a safe way. And if you don't validate the network in a safe way, that money gets taken away. Um, so effectively, you have you have a node that's running 24-7, which is good because it's adding more nodes to the network. And Bitcoin does struggle with the number of nodes. So that's, that's one pro of it. Um, another pro is, of course, that it's 51% attack um, resistant because it's way more accessible to people. For example, I stake using a cryptocurrency called PIVX. And the minimum PIVX that you need to stake with is one PIV. And one PIV currently is worth, I think, somewhere around about $6. So for $6, you can, you can actually genuinely earn rewards consistently without joining a mining pool or a staking pool. Um, I say that in Ethereum, you may have to join staking pools at the start, but we'll move on to that in a minute. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so yeah, proof of stake is effectively, uh, you put your money on the line to say that you're going to validate things. You're going to put your money where your mouth is about exactly. being honest. And, and if you do something wrong, then the network will come back and punish you. It's as simple as that. And there's, there's, a, few, there's a few variations on it where, for example, um, there's things to do with how long the coins have been staking for, how long your wallet's been around, all of this sort of stuff to try and you know, make it a bit more fair. Because one of the big cons of proof of stake, of course, is that the rich get richer. If you're staking with 20% you know, of the network and you're earning 1% every year, for example, um, then you're earning a lot more than someone who's staking with 1% of the network and getting 1% a year. You just become monopolies in different ways as opposed to having mining rigs set up that you know obviously are kind of honing that power. It's actually with real money or real yes. coin. Exactly, exactly. So with Ethereum's implementation via Casper, um, currently on the testnet, I think it's uh, 1,500 ETH that you have to stake um, as, as a minimum. So that's that's a lot of money. That's like four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars at today's prices. Um, so, and, and that's after the big correction we've had. So you know that's some substantial money. But Vitalik does want to slowly bring that down. That's part of an effort to kind of taper proof of stake in and proof of work out via Casper. Yeah, because they're hoping to do like a, a split, aren't they? Where it's going to be proof of work and proof of stake at the beginning. So it's not going to be an initial, you know, switch. Yeah, and, and it's due to take somewhere around two to three years for that transition to effectively complete. So it will start with a really high limit on who can stake to not incentivize too many people to do it. Um, and uh, only one in every hundredth block, I think it is, will be uh, effectively minted using proof of stake, uh, whereas 99 of those hundred would be, will be generated using proof of work. Um, and then over time, the, the limit for staking will come down and the number of blocks that staking can mint will increase while the number of proof of work goes down. And it's, it's such an interesting because, I mean, this is now a real life system that you're now having to, you know, kind of work on, uh, you know, and it is that whole design decisions of how do we get. I mean, it's the hardest system. It's not something like a web application where you can just tear up and tear down these systems yourself. That they're privately managed. This is other people's, you know you have to incentivize them enough to want to switch. And there's that slow rollout of how we're going to get there without any problems in between. And it's, and it's interesting because I've always thought that launching a currency from, crap, from scratch with uh, proof of stake is quite a difficult thing to do um, because you don't have that, reinforce, that reinforcing factor of, hey, we have to spend this much for hardware, so the price should be this much. Otherwise, we stop mining, at which point the cryptocurrency doesn't really work, right? So you, 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 you have this like support structure that's supporting the value, whereas you don't really have that in proof of stake, at least not at the start. However, later on, I think proof of stake does it in an even more powerful way. So if we look at something like Dash, for example, which has masternodes, which use proof of stake, in, in Dash, you have to stake a minimum of 1,000, I think it's 1,000, it might be 10,000 Dash, um, which is an awful lot of money. I think it's, it's up in the millions now. Um, 
And, and when you're doing this, of course, that money is locked up. So if you think about it, it's an incentive for the price. It's not an incentive. It's, it's, it's a mechanism to increase price growth, actually, in that cryptocurrency, because the money is locked up. People aren't going to spend that money. They're not going to sell it and withdraw because they don't want to lose the chance of having their masternode and their staking rewards. Um, so you have this pressure that's pushing the price upwards because all of the supply is just being taken offline and locked down because people want to get their 2 or 3% yearly revenue from it. Are they able to get the like 2 3%? Does that go to another um, wallet or is that actually in, locked up in the initial? Uh, it, it goes into their wallet. They can use that as they wish, as long as they stay above the minimum level. Um, so, so perhaps they would, you know, constantly be send, spending that new generated uh, cryptocurrency, but there's still a thousand or ten thousand dash locked up that they will not want to move because they don't want to risk losing their access to their node if the price spikes when they're gone. You know, well, it's interesting because you mentioned obviously, you know, proof of stake currently, uh, and there are some coins out there. So you mentioned one of them. Like, how, how has your experience been with these coins? Um, actually, my experience with Pivx was quite bad. Actually, <laughs> uh, it's it's one of my favorite coins, but it is it is like Ethereum. In fact, more than Ethereum, I would say it's it's probably one of the most insanely fast moving cryptocurrencies there is. Um, and they've implemented a bunch of features that you don't see in any other cryptocurrency project at the moment. And uh, so so staking staking was quite difficult to get working to begin with. Um, once it was up and running, I was quite happy, but the sheer number of uh, things they're pushing through on that blockchain uh, alone has caused so many issues, including me losing all of my Pivx. <laughs> which is joking. Entirely unrecoverable. And I had a substantial amount of Pivx. So how the hell a, did that happen? I don't mind mentioning. Yeah, I'll, I'll go through it. So they introduced something called uh, ZPIV, um, which is effectively a privacy network built on top of Pivx. Uh, so not too dissimilar to something like the Lightning Network, except that it's you know its own cryptocurrency built on top of that one that's you know one to one exchangeable effectively. And when they implemented this, uh, everyone had to update their wallets, and there were a bunch of bugs, and they had to roll back the roll back the blockchain as like a concerted effort about four times uh, in order to fix it, and all of that was fine. But uh, a few months later, my PC died, um, and so I went to my backup, and you know my backup wallet of pivx and i went to go and you know recover the funds and i started downloading the blockchain everything was looking fine i saw the transactions going in and out but eventually uh when it was fully loaded i realized that my balance was only at uh six piv or something like that (laughs) um and i looked into it and basically it was because when they implemented the the upgrade uh everyone who had a backup of their wallet had to create a new one every time they minted some ZPIV instead of traditional PIV. So ZPIV is the privacy PIVX. And by default, the wallet was set to uh, effectively convert all of it like the first time. And then after that, it would convert like 10% every, you know, every time new funds were added to the wallet. So it would keep 10% always in ZPIV to help power that network. Um, and so because it had moved all into that and it's a privacy-based cryptocurrency and my wallet didn't support my, my backup wallet didn't support that privacy-based cryptocurrency. It was gone forever. Entirely unrecoverable. Oh, man. So, the risks, uh, eh? The risks of crypto. <laughs> the worst thing is that about three days after that, um, BitGrail Exchange got hacked and I lost a load of Nano as well. No. <laughs> so, hey, um, I've been in the crypto space for years it's and years. It's the Wild years. West, isn't it? And I've lost funds, you know, three or four times. It's always been pretty small amounts, but those ones, both of those, really did hurt a bit. <laughs> uh, especially at these prices, oh man! Yeah. But so, so are you? Are you still? Obviously, you've got a bit of a bit of taste in your mouth with Pivx now. I think it's interesting with with a cryptocurrency. Like, it's good that you see development. I mean, obviously, with all of these, you know, ICOs and things like that, like people have these false promises, and you know, it's nice to see actually things come to fruition and people working on these projects. But do you feel like maybe there's it's kind of too much uh there's kind of you need to have that in between you know like ethereum now where it, it's it's a you know it's a stable coin that needs obviously progression but over time in a staged manner yeah i mean i think it's it all comes down to uh risk appetite really at the end of the day um if if you are a new cryptocurrency starting now and you want to compete just as a currency then you have to work very very hard to try and 
you know, surpass the features that are available in Monero and Zcash and um, Bitcoin and Pivx and Dash. You know, like those, all of those currencies have got some really, really strong features um, that are that are pretty complex. And if you want and a to big build user something, base, yeah, a big user base as well. And the network effect is a real thing. So, so you have to grow quickly. Um, so I think I think you're almost forced um, if it's a new project to, to work at just insane pace. And if you look at, um, you know, the growth of currencies over time, you know, like Ethereum was an awful lot faster moving than Bitcoin. And, you know, you've got EOS, which is even faster moving than, than that. And then you've got Cardano, which is just thinking like four years in the future and doesn't, isn't even trying to compete at the moment effectively. So you have all of these different um, projects that are, that are trying to grow quickly in, in the areas that they're competing in. And the, the later they are starting, the faster they have to move or the more crazy features they have to try and build and they need a twist they all need a twist and like you say yeah it is the you know the the whole kind of user base is such an important aspect because it's the most people using it and that will win out essentially it doesn't matter if you're the best it's like betamax versus vhs yes you know it's like hd to dvd to blu-ray or whatever these things whether you feel you know which one's the better one it doesn't actually matter it's the one that people use yeah it doesn't have to you can have the best features in the world but unless uh unless it's substantial enough to make people switch over they won't switch um, absolutely and, man and i think there's there's evidence of that absolutely everywhere in the world really if you look at it as you just gave plenty of examples of no, absolutely it's, it's really interesting because with proof of stake I've, I've been kind of interested in the concept of it and you know trying to wrap your head around it of the idea of the incentives behind it and everything uh, and there's a i'll put it in the show notes but this is really interesting video series from i think it's alpha crypto and essentially he's gone through this experiment from last year uh, i think he's a fellow brit where he actually set up i think he went through like pivx neo red coin exclusive coin black coin neos coin all of these different ones set them up on like a massive vm suite and just like is leaving them running for the year uh just to see kind of how what growth you get in etc so i think it's interesting to see this kind of thing and you know the move away from this kind of central proof of work system where you know people coming in now they really are kind of like they don't have much stake in the game in their regard you know like what is the incentive for them to store a whole blockchain other than to be nice uh you know it's all about these rewards yeah um and of course it's about competing with each other as well because you don't want to there's there's like almost uh, conflicting interests at play. So as a currency that wants to compete with Bitcoin, you want to be more deflationary, right? So you want to you want to generate less coins every year because by doing that, the store of value is higher. But at the same time, you want to lure people in by saying, hey, look, you earn this much. You actually get some coins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you have to generate that from somewhere and you're either generating it from high transaction fees or you're generating it from interest. Um, so there's this weird uh, playoff between the two, um, trying to figure out what happened. What, what you know which which model to go with yeah it's it's a, it's a really hard decision and, and it's interesting with proof of stake like what's your what's your thoughts what, what would what do you think the miners are thinking about this obviously they've put a lot of investment into the proof of work you know the fact that ethereum obviously is going to be moving away uh could that have a big play in like whether ethereum is successful with the switch over uh, I think Ethereum is pretty safe at this point, and um, if anything, I expect to see more price growth uh, towards Casper's release um, as people get excited about potentially staking on it, and and people try and build up their balances to have enough to to become a staker. In terms of like the impact on on proof of work and on miners specifically who bought hardware and invested in in mining, I think there's plenty of other options out there, and there will be for a very long time. Personally, I don't think Bitcoin will ever switch. And I actually think that that's okay because um, I think I think we've we've seen from the amount of power that's used through the whole crypto space and through Bitcoin on its own that realistically we probably can afford to have one blockchain that is proof of work. Um, and I, I think it's quite important to have it. I think it's it's valuable. People people see it as a real safe haven because of its proof of work. Um, Monero have also commented that you know they're very keen to stick with proof of work and continually change their algorithm to be resistant to ASICs. Yeah, because that, that obviously that's like the chick. That is like the the constant run, isn't it? You know, they're chasing the tail with the fact that you know obviously ASICs come along. I think Ethereum have like been able to kind of deal because Ethereum is one of those ones where it was very much GPU bound based on the fact of memory, etc. But some ASICs have come out that are kind of competing with that, and it's the decisions whether they want to actually. I think Vitalik said no, he doesn't want to at this time. Yeah, 
and and the same with same with Monero and and Litecoin's been through the same thing. You know, Litecoin's using uh, script based mining, which is very uh, memory intensive, and uh, you know they they went a very long time still being mineable on CPUs. So in in the era when Bitcoin moved from CPUs to GPUs, Litecoin was still mineable on CPUs. So people people were actually mining both at the same time on the same system. Um, which is quite interesting, and there are there are other different types out there as well. You know, there's there's proof of storage, um, which is proof of how much hard drive space you have, and and people were literally buying banks and banks and banks of you know server racking to install all of these hard drives to to mine cryptocurrency. Um, I don't think that one actually worked out too well. I did, yeah, I was thinking. That. <laughs> I think that there is um there is other obviously blockchains technologies and stuff that rely on you know storage. Uh, I think you know maybe down the line in this podcast we can talk about like IPFS and stuff. You know, there's some interesting. You know, it's again, it's not only based on the fact of currency. You know, it, there is other practical use cases. Yeah, um, I mean, there, there's a bunch of uh, cryptocurrencies out at the moment which which are effectively for decentralized file storage. And only uh, only a couple of weeks ago, actually, uh, Sirecoin, which is my favorite of those cryptocurrencies, um, released a video of of them testing live streaming video that is stored on their decentralized what? storage system. So you can stream your video that's stored effectively in in decentralized Dropbox to your PC without having to download it, which is really really cool, um, really really cool technology. And it makes you wonder how long until we get fully decentralized streaming applications up and running as well because there are quite a few projects also working on that man this space is so so cool i think this is one of those spaces especially when like the internet started up and you know it's something that you have to constantly be kind of you know looking at the news seeing what's going on reading the github pools and everything and that's what i love about it it's so interesting and so revolutionary yeah, it's 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 growing at an exponential rate. I mean, even proof of stake, which is still, you know, it's it's one of the older concepts for for mining algorithms and was around, I think, from you know, around 20, 2012, 2013 kind of time. It was the first time I remember seeing it. And and even that, like we've now got so many different variations of it. As I mentioned, you can you can set it up so it's based on coin age and you can base you know, base it on random selection of groups of people to be able to take it in turns. So it's not based on just how much money you have in your wallet. Um, things like uh, Definity, which is a new project coming up, which uses a form of delegated proof of stake, and EOS uses delegated proof of stake in another different form. Like the space is just rapidly, rapidly evolving, and I think um, I do think we're reaching a state of of getting to that point where we we will have that moment where we have something that's good enough. It may not be perfect, and and there will still be people trying to strive for something more perfect. But I think we're reaching the point where we could we could hit algorithms and and transaction volumes that are good enough for the first generation of applications to finally kind of be released out into the wild. And it's interesting because this space at this time, you know, people their brains are going wild over all of these different things. You know, like you say, they're going into so many different like proof of you know space and all this kind of crazy stuff. <laughs> it remind it feels like you know the nineteen seventies when programming, like all of these concepts now we do in programming that we rehash, essentially came out in the beautiful the seventies, essentially, and you know functional and all OOP and all this. And it's fun to see that you know at this time we are really at the forefront of it. And you know, over time, as you say, things will get rehashed, and you know, we'll, we'll slowly uh, move towards a more stable environment where we'll be happy with what we got. But you know, this is the time at the moment where all of these ideas are kind of first coming out. So you just see wacky stuff, crazy stuff. I mean, crypto is all these kind of things that are really pushing it. Uh, it's yeah, it's absolutely amazing. I think I'm at the point now where you know, I remember, I remember a couple of years ago. Um, in fact, I remember four years ago, and it was so easy to keep up with cryptocurrencies because there are about there are about twelve of them at the time. You know, you had Darkcoin, Peercoin, Namecoin, you know, Litecoin and Bitcoin, a handful of others. Um, I remember NXT was the big one. NXT was the Ethereum. Everyone was hyped about NXT. And NXT still exists, and actually they released a, a second version of NXT, and it's it's still you know a big cryptocurrency. It's got a big following, but um, it's it's just so impossible to keep up with these things now. Um, you know, it, it moves at such a pace, and I sometimes I go back and I look at those old coins like Nova Coin, which used to be, you know, fourth or fifth on Coin Market Cap, is now you know down at like five hundredth or something. Uh, and it just shows how far we've come and how how ruthless the environment is. You know. You, you, you build something good or or you become irrelevant quite quickly 
Definitely. Mentioning CryptoKit is again, and you know, the fact that the amount of overload on the Ethereum network that caused uh, one way of doing, of dealing with this is the fact of this idea and concept called sharding. Would you maybe kind of explain a little bit, kind of a high level overview of what that idea is uh, in the Ethereum network and, and really what the benefits are going to be? Yeah. So sharding is something that's a bit more complex to explain in detail, but effectively it is side chains um it's side chains and like trees of chains um that have the parent chain of ethereum so you can have a chain underneath ethereum that doesn't use proof of stake or proof of work it just inherits that from the chain above it it inherits that property and um and you can build these chains for much more specific tasks and then the nodes for that chain are run by the people that are interested in that particular data set effectively so if people are really interested in having something that's got high computational power or you know high storage or, or whatever um or maybe like super super fast transactions um then then they can run nodes for these different side chains and if these chains uh you know are under attack or or face problems you can actually skip it and still go back up to the base chain which is capable of handling everything the, the default ethereum chain um, and this this sharding effectively is all like kind of entangled with plasma in in how it works and and if you look at things like uh, the new Telegram uh, ICO for Ton, uh, they they talk about putting effectively turning not not just having you know side chains and and parent and child chains, but having every block be a blockchain and all these kind of things and and it very quickly becomes very confusing. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely, man. Yeah, it's it's something that definitely is worth spending. Like, if if it's something that interests you, you'll probably need to take you know maybe a week a week of searching around Wikipedia, YouTube, and various uh, forums to really wrap your head around exactly how it works. And honestly, I still I still struggle with sharding, sharding and and side chains. It's it's a definitely a difficult com- concept to get your head around. It is all about throughput, isn't it? And the fact of you know, the, I think Ethereum have got one of the hardest jobs going is that they essentially want to be able to run any dap but people don't care about all dapps like you know and this is the trouble with it is that you want to maintain this throughput but if crypto kit is is suddenly having a, a surge and everything goes off on it and the fact that i can't get through and use my whatever other blockchain applications that i want to use it won't work and yeah splitting them out and shard them in this way but still maintaining that kind of you know the immutability and the the confidence is where you is where you get the wins yeah exactly Exactly, and 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 that's the goal of it is to isolate some of the some of the 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 big hogs of the network effectively, and uh, and still have them operating fine. But if if they have a problem in their code, then it doesn't affect everyone. You know, that's that's one of the key key reasons for it. And uh, one thing I would like to bring up, and I think this is a very buzzy word term. I mean, we've had when Web One, we've had Web Two Point the the concept of web 3.0 what what is this i assume is it just it's the distribution the decentralization yeah it basically is so concepts like ipfs um obviously blockchains uh even even distributed ledger technologies which is you know the the company friendly version of a blockchain <laughs> which which i still think doesn't serve that much of a purpose but <laughs> um yeah, like I, th- I think it's the combination of those things that do it, and I think actually it's almost um, it's almost like an ideological movement to a certain extent of of crowd ownership of services. Um, I think the Facebook, the the recent Facebook scandal with Cambridge Analytica is is a really good example of of why a decentralized social network would be an amazing thing because you would have no advertisements, all of your data would be your own. And you would still have all of the perks of that social network. You could still use decentralized file storage to store all of your photos and videos and share it with people um, through a simple interface. You know, we've already seen effectively the proof of concept in this field, which is Steemit, which which really shows that you can build a blockchain that is usable by normal people who don't who have never interacted with a blockchain before. And I, I have friends that have used Steemit and and I've showed them it and I didn't tell them that it was a blockchain. They didn't know until I told them. Um, See, now that is, is the win, isn't it? That is the absolute win. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the end goal. You know, one of my favorite projects um, that's really, really, you know, low low value, I don't think I actually own any of their tokens anymore, uh, was a project called Swarm City. Um, and they're, they're really, really focused on, you know, open source movement and, and I, the, you know, they use IPFS and all these kind of things and decentralization. But one thing that they are absolutely, you know, laser beam focused on 
is keeping the the interaction with the platform as simple as possible. And you can actually go on their website and it's effectively like a demo of what they've built so far um, in terms of UI. And it's it's basically just the most clean, simple UI you could ever you could ever imagine for anything. You know, there there is a photo of of you know like uh, a blank face, and you click it, and then you can set your display profile as that. And and there's there's no indication anywhere on this that that you're using a blockchain, but you're using a blockchain for absolutely everything. Everything on that website is you know stored through IPFS, for example. So it's uh it's really really cool to see these kind of projects coming along. And, and personally, I, I really can't wait for these things to come to fruition. I was, um, I was at an EOS meetup in London a few weeks ago, and there was a guy there who was presenting. Um, and it was, it was a very interesting audience. You know, there was a guy with the Financial Times wrapped under one of his arms, sitting on a, perched up on a stall. In a, a, you know. I, I, I would ask, like, what is the demographic of people at these meetups now? But well, that's the thing. That's like that's the thing. It's it's so it's so wide. You 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 have people like the guy I was just describing, right? Who is clearly a, a rich guy. Maybe he's like you know C uh, level in a company, you know, board of directors or or whatever. Perhaps he's a trader. Perhaps he you know works for a bank or something. But he's got a lot of money. Um, and he asked some of the most idiotic questions in that room, <laughs> as as far as people like me and, and most of the other people in the room were concerned. You know, um, he really had a lot of concerns about how, yeah, but how do you pay for it? How how does this work? And how does this work? And and didn't understand the the basics of EOS, which you know this application was being built on top of. Uh, and obviously, to be at an, an EOS meet, meetup and have no idea about EOS, um, especially a developer meetup for EOS, um, was quite. You're a in the wrong room, mate, aren't you? <laughs> uh, and and yet there was this guy on the floor who was who was like wearing a vest and shorts. And bear in mind, like this was a couple of months ago, so this was like you know February or something. So it was, it was really cold, uh, and he was just like wearing a vest and shorts. Like the shorts were all ripped and like super scruffy, like hair down to his you know down to his waist, um, and he was. Probably, I think he was probably the richest person in the room. I have a feeling, um, and he was asking all of the right questions about about these applications and and how to get involved in them. And, and he really understood the, the space. And you can you can tell very quickly, I think, at meetups these days, who's been in the space for a long time because generally they're they're a lot more understated. I think um, that's that's what I've noticed. It's it's, it's very interesting. I mean, there, there are plenty of you know there. You know, the, there's a good mix. There's a good mix. I think the one thing actually that we're we're missing most of probably at the moment is women, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, although I I like uh, I like that Lightning Network has uh, Elizabeth Stark, who's kind of carrying the torch for for women in blockchain at the moment. And you know, there's Laura Shin. There are some good blockchain mm. women out there, but certainly you know when you actually go out to the meetups and stuff, it is a bit male. <laughs> unfortunately, that is in all tech. Uh, sadly, still. Yeah, yeah. At the moment, unfortunately. But, you know, with with Web3 and stuff and, you know, this idea, and and this is something I'm very interested in, is the idea of these, because obviously you've got the languages like Ethereum, or you've got like the programming languages that allow you to write things with like Solidarity and stuff in Ethereum, like these smart contracts. But there's these these SDKs and stuff that allow you to just do it on even higher level languages like JavaScript. And, you know, this idea that you'll be able to kind of interact with the blockchain just in your web browser and to be able to produce these applications is fascinating. And that's where you say you get these things like Steamit and Scuttlebutt and stuff that, you know, people will not know that you use in the blockchain. And I think that's the win. And, you know, this is the reason why Facebook, Facebook is scary because, and it's like Google, it's like, it's not free that you're, you're the product. If you're not paying for it, you are the product. And it's, it's more, to, you know, it stands up set of time that you don't have ownership of you, you know, of your online presence when you're using these products. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because you know if you kind of expand out a few years and you think about the potential utopian world of everything being decentralized, there is every reality that we have a point in our lives where everyone owns a little Raspberry Pi size computer that maybe costs you know fifty dollars or something, and that will effectively contribute to running their social media platforms that they use, uh, the YouTube platforms that they use. Um, you know, absolutely everything that they use in their day-to-day life, their currency, um, shops that they potentially own parts of and own shares of, companies, stock markets, um, all of these, you know, betting websites, absolutely everything that anyone would potentially use online. And you could effectively just have a, a small 
box on your on your desk or you know even built into your refrigerator or something like that that is helping to run all of these networks and basically has a node for all of these different networks that you care about and you can just pick which ones you want to run yeah and contribute into what you use and, and that's exactly what you want you want to maintain what you're currently use, using in an easy to use manner and i think that's you know obviously at the moment we're you know it's this whole idea of crossing the chasm and stuff where you know, we, we are still very much in the early stages. So products that come out, you know, we've got to incentivize people who don't really care about the underlying technologies and, and social networks and stuff are a great, a great way of doing that. Yeah, I think um, I, I really think that um, I, you know, I said, I don't know if we discussed it on, on the last um, podcast, actually, but for the last probably about the last eight or nine months now, I've been talking about EOS as, as you know, my most bullish uh, to use a trading term, um, my most bullish pick for a cryptocurrency. And, you know, I Would you mind explaining said, a little bit about EOS, actually? Because I know we mentioned Dash last time. Yeah, so EOS is actually a competitor to Ethereum, effectively. Um, and it's built by the same guy that built Steemit. And before Steemit, he also built uh, BitShares, which is another... It's not quite as you know smart contracty as Ethereum. You can't write anything, but you can certainly create you know, different share structures for companies and different um, tokens with different mechanics pretty easily on it. Um, and it's a decentralized exchange to, to exchange them on. And, and that's been running for a pretty long time. And with both of these, he made monumental steps in the number of transactions per second that you can do through both. So Steemit uh, supports, I think, something in the region of uh, 10,000 transactions per second, something like that. Um, which is basically more than pretty much any other blockchain at the moment that isn't using some weird magic. <laughs> um, and and Steamer obviously has been very successful in terms of a UI perspective. And EOS has has taken taken that and he's you know he's taken that proof of concept. And he said right, I want to now enable everyone to build things the same size as that application on one network. And so he started working on EOS. Um, and there's some pretty complex stuff going on in it and uh, it is slightly more centralized in how it works it uses delegated proof of stake which basically means that you get to stake but you delegate someone to do that for you effectively you delegate um a block producer um who who creates the blocks and there's only uh, a small number of them you know i think it's 21 it might have gone up to like just over 50 um who are actually validating blocks but the block times are you know in theory somewhere around one second so you have a, a you have a block every second, and the reason that you can do that is because of the delegated side of it. So effectively, what happens is every time someone's mining a block, they are voting on the order of who gets to pick the next five blocks ahead. So the network is effectively thinking ahead about who's going to produce the next one, so that there isn't any latency, and they can tell them to start working on it pretty much straight away. Yeah, and 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 it's 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 about basically streamlining you know how it's using how it's using the world effectively because obviously if if you know one block producer is in australia and the other is in the uk then that's going to take potentially over a second um to to just get to him to start the next block by which point it's technically too late <laughs> um so it's so it's very important to delegate based on geographic location and ping and and you have these these big block producers who are um, effectively running some big complex hardware so that the normal nodes and users of the of the platform don't need to, but those are owned by various different parties and decentralized and there's lots of them and you can vote for the one that you want your stake to go towards. So if there's a bad actor, you can effectively remove him. It's a bit like having you know how how politics works and where you elect a representative. Um, so so that's the system they've gone for, and there's no transaction fees. Um, it's yeah it's it's a crazy crazy system there's a lot to explain on it but uh they are due to release the the first uh version of it the actual blockchain in a few months time in june i think it is uh so if you've got any eos tokens you need to register register them on their website because they're currently erc20 tokens and they will swap it for you to the real token when the main net goes live man that is exciting exciting times indeed yeah, um, so so that's one that I've been talking about for a long time. And at, at Christmas, I did a, a podcast episode basically with Etoro, with a bunch of their other top traders, um, and they asked us all to predict predict like you know the top three cryptocurrencies by this time next year. And I, I put EOS in the top three. 
I think it will surpass surpass Ripple um, and possibly even surpass Ethereum. What's your thoughts on Ripple? I'm I'm not a big fan of Ripple, generally speaking, because I I think it has a lot of problems with centralization. You know, um, over sixty percent of the tokens are still owned by the company and some of the founders, um, which is an awful lot of supply to have in the hands of one person. You know, if we we saw on the run up to three and a half dollars, actually, uh, Chris Larson, uh, who's one of the founders of of Ripple, actually become I think it was the 40-something richest person in the world, surpassing Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, no, that's not good. That, that, that doesn't work out, does it, really? The idea of decentralization. And for something that's not even really being used yet, you know, you can imagine if, if this project works and, and if they do manage to onboard lots and lots of banks and, you know, everyone starts using it, it becomes effectively like a global reserve currency, which is, effect, which is basically their plan. Their plan is to build it as a reserve currency that's used as a settlement layer. If, if that works, then he would actually probably be richer than most nations. Uh, and so that's, that's actually my single biggest problem with it, is that I am categorically against anyone being that rich. Um, and I find it slightly, slightly concerning and almost repulsive, actually, that, that they've still got that money and they haven't decided to give it away uh, or do something you know, good with it. It just seems so weird that after becoming a billionaire that you would just keep going and keep going and keep going knowing that your project is not even at 1% of its potential, you know? Um, it, well, it's, it's, it's just insane, you know, that, that someone can be that greedy. Um, so, so that's like one of my, my, my personal big gripes about it. But there are a lot of other problems to do with centralization. So, uh, for example, Stellar, which forked off of Ripple originally and then decided to create its own consensus mechanism, created its own consensus mechanism because they found flaws in ripples and they were very concerned that it basically wouldn't work after a certain point so that's why stellar created their own their own version so you know there's there's a lot of to and fro between ripple and stellar about you know if if that's a real fault or not um there's there's problems concerning you know how how nodes operate so anyone can now create a, a node to become a validator on ripple on Ripple's network, but in order to to do that, you have to first be approved by Ripple and put onto like a default list. Uh, and of course, everyone again centralization. So 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 they're in charge of you know you you can become a node, but no one's going to use you unless Ripple say, oh yeah, you can use this guy. So there's there's a lot of things they are they have you know produced a plan on how they want to decentralize over time, and they have genuinely made steps in the right direction. You know, a year ago there were less than uh, less than 50 active nodes on on Ripple, and now there are somewhere in the region of you know 300 or so. So it's it's taking steps in the right direction, but I think there's still a huge amount of uh, of con- things to be concerned about. And I don't think really it's the kind of thing that fits into that that vision that I gave you a few minutes ago of everyone contributes to what you know. No one is fully in charge of a piece of infrastructure. Whereas Ripple was quite clearly, I think, an attempt to make sure that they still control that piece of infrastructure they're building. I think that is the fear, isn't it? I think Vitalik's mentioned it before. Is that the, the biggest, scariest thing is if the governments and maybe Google and things and Facebook create their own currency, cryptocurrency that everyone uses, because you still are, you know, centralized. Like it, you, you may get some of it. I mean, the idea would be, you know, some of the the bits, you know, that are pros of this kind of movement you could get but then fundamentally they hold the keys and there's this idea that you know there's still a root key that we can still turn it on and off how we please yeah um it's it's about it's about freedom of choice at the end of the day i think um but but i i do think we're gonna see we're gonna see this play out over the next few years i think we're going to see this you know this battle between amazon coin and bitcoin probably within the next two or two or three years. Um, and I suspect even on, on the earlier side of that time frame, we've already seen governments themselves start to create cryptocurrencies. Only a matter of time. And it's scary. I know we've hit, an over, hit over the hour mark now. So I'd just like to ask one more question and one more topic that I'm really interested in at the moment. And that is IPFS. Uh, so you did actually ping me with this after the last episode and I looked into it and it's just a fascinating project. Would you mind maybe explaining a little bit for the audience? Yeah, so IPFS is basically decentralized storage. And anyone, it's, it's a network of, of storage, effectively. And anyone can give out their hard drive space on this network. And there are quite a few different implementations of it. Um, and there are even you know, some other solutions, like I mentioned, like Sirecoin, which are kind of 
on their own and aren't tech, technically the same thing. But basically, it allows for totally decentralized storage, and you can link this into your websites. And you know, there's there's lots of things in there for redundancy and things like that. Um, and and you know, you can you can choose how high performance you want it. But effectively, the the ideas that I've seen floated around most often are by by applications a bit like Swarm City, actually, who who are using IPFS um, in a small group, a small collection of other projects, and they've all basically promised to store all of each other's data, so that there is you know some really strong redundancy and that it remains decentralized, and that they're, they're all purposely paying to store other people's data um, to ensure that it's fully decentralized. And of course. As as we know, decentralization comes with a whole bunch of advantages, such as you know immutability, um, the the inability for government to shut it down, and things like that. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting movement, and I think actually it's it's one of the the biggest movements specifically for websites and for the web. Like it really enables uh, a much more distributed um, distributed like website infrastructure. Effectively, you know the the ability for you to create a a website about let's say i don't know ukip right you know i'm not a big fan of ukip but but potentially you know if if you know uh, a country is super left-leaning and they don't want that to exist it would be at this point reasonably easy to enforce we've seen gchq do do these sort of things that's uh, it start blocking. There, there is still there's too much centralization in the web at this time yeah yeah definitely and you know like the big players and stuff like aws and you know cdns like cloudflare and stuff you know you have all these this infrastructure that can be easily manipulated yeah exactly it's 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 very easy to censor people now because as you say like most most people are getting their their web uh their web hosting and their web services from from three companies right and those companies are amazon alibaba and microsoft possibly in that order might not be in that order actually i think microsoft second but but you know, Microsoft Azure, Amazon Web Services, and Alibaba's that I don't know the name of, are basically providing everything. And so, if you're building something that is inherently competing against these guys, it would be very easy for them to censor you. And of course, Alibaba we know is working very, very closely with the Chinese government on all sorts of different projects. Most notably, uh, the Black Mirror-esque um, rating system for every citizen. Uh, and when when a company is working that closely to the government, you really do have to wonder, like, do do they have access to your your data and your projects? If you're working on something that's you know highly confidential, perhaps you're working on a new cryptocurrency. There's every chance that, uh, and you're storing your your files on there or whatever, your your website's running off it. There's every chance that China could just come along and, and turn it off um, and and take your work. So uh, I think I think that's you know that's at the core of the movement. Is it's about protecting protecting people's rights and and trying to remove the power from from the big companies that are currently taking over the space absolutely i mean and the nice thing about ipfs and stuff is that again you know that it's kind of dealing with it in the consumer side of things is you have http kind of bindings to it so you're able to use you know these things and the idea of content versus location-based addressing is super interesting uh you know this concept you know where we have a website at this time i have a cat picture on there uh cat.jpg you know i send you that link you don't know if that's the actual you know someone may have maliciously changed that you don't know if that's the actual thing you know whereas with content-based addressing you know where i have a char a verifiable reproducible char hash or whatever of that file you know that when i'm sending you this link that i'm expecting you to see the same contents as what i envisioned you to do so yeah it's super super interesting and powerful. that's 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 actually another thing that i kind of forgot to mention is that there is i don't know if they've, they've already started doing it yet but there's a lot of potential to store things effectively only once you don't need to make a million copies of something and store it everywhere if everyone is using the same twitter logo on their website then there could just you can be do like, deduplication exactly that there, there can there can just be like 50 versions of the same twitter logo but they're all the same hash right so you know that you're getting the correct version the verified version that everyone else is using um and you know that it is as you say exactly that thing and you're not wasting space with 25 different versions one that's 25 megabytes in size and one that's 10 kilobytes in size and one that's you know a vector image and one that's something else you just have the default for all the different you know all the different sizes and, and formats and you don't have duplicates of them you're not wasting space 
It's the Git. Um, it's the Git version control way of doing it. And I think yeah. actually, it's interesting that I think Dropbox actually fundamentally does this, which is a little let more scary because obviously then they're obviously reading your files uh, easily and being able to dedupe them. Uh, you know, this idea that if you're sharing it between m- multiple Dropbox accounts, this file, what's the point in having multiple of them? Uh, so I think yeah, there, it has been used in the past to, to success. It's an interesting space. It's an interesting space. It's it is totally interesting. I could talk to you for hours and hours, man. But I know you're a very busy man. Uh, so I think what we'll do is leave it there. But I say it's been a great time again, man. And definitely have to have you back on if you're up for it. Because uh, yeah, it's just always super interesting talking talking to you about all this stuff. Yeah, of course. Perhaps awesome. Next time we can talk about EOS more. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, definitely, man. Definitely. All right, then, audience. Well, it's been another great episode, and we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.